All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo, episode 219. Uh, super excited to get into this one with Pat Duchesne, who is the VP of sales over at Postal.io. <clears throat> Before we get to the interview and all that good stuff, let's give a quick shout out to our sponsors. First, Gong.io. Um, I love Gong so much that I went to work there. Uh, it is irresponsible for a CRO, a CEO, a VP of sales to run their team without Gong, which is the number one revenue intelligence platform. It'll help you coach better. It'll help you uh, drive more revenue. It'll help you understand your competitive landscape. Um, if you want to learn more, head to gong.io, or you could just hit me up on LinkedIn. My name's uh, Tom Alamo on LinkedIn. DM me. I'll put you in the direction of the right team. Uh, we are transforming businesses, whether it's you know 10-person startups or some of the largest companies in the world. So uh, come check us out. Second sponsor that we got is Postal IO. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, uh, one reason why Pat's here. So uh, Postal, in this world where we're all trying to automate and, and just push and push and push, uh, Postal helps uh, businesses to get very uh, specific with, you know, some of the, the things that they're sending to their customers, prospects, partners, right? So instead of just mass blasting, we're able to personalize whether it's the brewery across town, whether it's the florist right on your corner, um, and you're able to really make that uh, that that sending uh, very personalized for them um, and, and really break through the noise that way and build relationships. And I love the product. I use it. They're doing something really cool with the podcast that anyone that leaves a review on Apple, you leave a five-star review, you send it to me on LinkedIn, um, DM or post it or however you got to do it. Uh, we'll give you a, a Starbucks gift card on Postal. So super nice that they're doing that, helping to support the show, the listeners. Um, and you can go check more out about them at postal.io or just leave a review um, and send it to me and you'll get a free coffee or tea or um, I like at Starbucks, the uh, white cheddar turkey bacon, uh, yeah, turkey bacon sandwich, egg sandwich. Pretty good if you haven't had it. Um, all right. Today, I've got Pat Duchesne, and this was a ton, a ton of fun. Uh, when I say wide-ranging conversation, I mean, it was wide. We go, um, you know, from her childhood, where she lived on a farm in San Luis Obispo, you know, what that was like, and, and some of the, the qualities that that developed in her, into college. Straight out of college, she got into wine sales. Uh, there's a whole nother beast when you're selling to someone in person, face-to-face, -face, you know, credit card on the spot um, that we talk about. She went over to Reich after a few uh, other roles, uh, ended up spending almost seven years there, opened up their Dublin office, super cool experience that we talked about, you know, moving from California to Dublin uh, with her husband, opening up the office, all of the things that are required from that, and then heading back over to Postal uh, to build things out there. Um, we even talked about money, talked about, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Sales is a great profession is if you're interested in money. And then what do you actually do with that money once you start uh, making commission checks and making money? So I love having Pat on the show. Uh, I'm still fired up from our conversation a few weeks ago, and um, I think you're going to love it too. You can hit her up on LinkedIn if you liked it. Uh, you can always let us know how we're doing on LinkedIn or, or on the Apple podcast uh, or at, at Tommy Tahoe on Instagram, Twitter, every other social media. 
Uh, without further ado, let's get straight into my conversation with Pat Duchesne. Let's go. All right, Pat Deshane, good morning. Welcome to Millennial Sales. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, be here. And we were just kind of chatting a little bit about your background. I love the, what is it called? Mixed tiles? My mixed tiles, yes, in the background. Thank you very much. These are a uh, gift from my husband, we could call them. Yeah, are those just various cities across the world? It's hard to to navigate. Yeah, exactly actually, so uh, we we're very fortunate. We've lived in a few countries, um, and we've traveled a bit. And so these are all some of our favorite cities. So it's like Bangkok, Budapest, Prague, Copenhagen, Rome, Vienna, Barcelona, Porto. Um, so and I'll, and and actually, I'll be more transparent. I am eight and a half months pregnant. So this is our future child's room. So that's why they're up on the wall. Okay. <laughs> so, Pre-decorating. Yeah, get and get that kid uh, ready to travel uh, as, like, as yeah, soon as possible. Yeah, this kid's gonna have a passport early, very yeah. early. Yeah, I love that. I wish I, uh, I wish I traveled more earlier in my life. Do you know if it's a boy or girl year, or is this a surprise? I do. Yeah, it's a girl. Um, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know um, what your personality's like, but like the minute I found out I was pregnant, everyone's like, oh, "Are you gonna keep it a secret?" And I was like, "God, no!" I was like, I was <laughs> begging the doctor. Like the minute they told me I was pregnant, I was like, "Is it a boy? Is it a girl? What can you tell me? Do we know hair color yet? How does this work?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's a girl. Uh, it's a girl. So that's awesome. Well, congrats. Um, I would be the same way. Uh, for what it's worth, like type it. Like, there's some people who just like. Yeah, we'll just see what happens. And like, it's like, no, I, I got to know. Like, I got to plan. I'm a planner. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to have to like make this massive spreadsheet, which I have full of names as well as like second names and like mix and match them. Oh, yeah. We sent out a survey to the family. You want to guess weight <laughs> and height. Um, I can't be the only salesperson that's done this. Like, this is, I think this is kind of comes in the territory. But yeah, that's kind of how we've handled it. That's hilarious. Um, I love it. I, I'm not quite at that stage yet, but I'll have to probably hit you up in a few years for uh, for the, the spreadsheet idea. That's awesome. Um, so I want to uh, kick the conversation off. Uh, I'm always super interested in how people get into sales. Uh, doing a little LinkedIn uh, research, I saw that you first worked coming out of school at a winery, uh, which is not mm -hmm. maybe the usual path for uh, a VP of sales that, that they start there. So uh, how did you get in that um, and, and why did you choose that as like your first job coming straight out of school? Uh, well, okay. So let, let's back up for how I actually ended up in Northern California to begin with. It probably okay. would be a good segue. Um, so I grew up in San Luis Obispo, California, which is actually where I am now. Um, and growing up, my dad was in farming. So um, my my grandparents were actually cattle ranchers. And my grandparents always told my dad and his siblings, don't go on a cattle ranching. There's no money in cattle ranching. So my dad did like the only career that was worse than cattle ranching. He did farming, um, which is totally <laughs> controlled by the weather. Um, so I grew up in like a fairly agricultural background or setting. Um, and if you're familiar with 4-H, I did 4-H, which is actually kind of like my first taste of sales. Um, it's where you raise animals or you like make things and then you sell them um, as a kid. Um, they teach you how to like, control or at least monitor your expenses. Usually your parents basically just force you to pay them back. It's kind of how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I actually went to UC Davis thinking that I wanted to follow in like the family footsteps of agriculture. So I went to UC Davis, I studied agricultural business. I actually originally went there for crop science, 
Which I think wow. is wild that I thought I was going to work in like a lab studying plants. Crop science. Okay. Yep. That's what I went up there to do. Um, and I was like a sophomore, between sophomore and junior year. And I was like, I really like money. Like <laughs> this, like I, I honestly just kind of had this thing where I was, you know, cause it, what it was is when you're in college, you don't have a lot of cash. Like you just yeah. don't, you know, you wait. I remember Tuesday nights at $4 movies at our movie theater. That was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and then we did, you know, thirsty Thursdays, but you had like your days of the week you saved up for and everything yeah. else is pretty much like scrounge the top ramen or like get craft Mac and cheese when it's on sale at Costco. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, I just don't like living like this. And yeah. so, um, it was when it was during that, that I started to change what I was doing in school. And that's actually how I found the winery. So I started working at the winery when between sophomore and junior year, um, part-time, and I was there, I was doing like admin, things like that. And then when I turned 21 and I was a senior, they said, why don't you try selling? Like, why don't you try selling our wine? They had never sold their wine outside the winery. And I, I mean, in, in hindsight, I'm like, what were they thinking? Um, yeah. I had 21 year old, why don't you just take our wine and walk into some of the nice ho sort of hotels and restaurants in Sacramento and just see what happens. Yeah. You know, mind you, I, at the time I'd been like drinking Carlo Rossi and two buck Chuck. So yeah. What did I know? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> not necessarily so, a product expert. <laughs> not, no, no. I mean, I was an alcohol expert. I can't say I was a wine expert. Yeah. <laughs> um, specifically the lower shelf at the supermarket. So yeah. I, that's, that's honestly how I got my taste. So I started selling wine when I was a senior, fell in love with it, did it for a while after school. Um, and honestly, I, what I, what I realized in selling wine was that I'm probably better at drinking it than I'm selling it. Um, I have, I have a take on wine. That's not super popular probably for people who are in the industry, which I totally understand because it is an art form for many. Um, but I'm kind of like, if you like the cheap stuff, more power to you. Yeah. And that's not always, um, that's not always a take that people enjoy. So anyways, that wasn't for me. Um, but I'm great at dinner parties now. I've learned a lot about wine, so I can definitely like throw a couple fun facts around. Mm -hmm. But um, when I was finishing up my time at the winery, all my friends who had previously been at Davis and Sacramento were like, we're moving to the Bay and we're going to go work in, I'm going to put air quotes for those of you who are listening, tech. Yeah. And so remember my background, I don't know what tech is. I went to UC Davis for crop science. I came from a farming background. So all my friends are going to San Francisco. And I'm like, well, I guess that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So I, uh, I started applying for jobs in air quotes tech and I landed a job at a company um, called Capital Asset Exchange, CAE, and thought it was tech. Um, now granted, it was hardware, so it is technology, but it wasn't SaaS, which yeah. is what all of my other friends were doing. So I didn't know the difference though. I couldn't even have told you what SaaS stood for at the time. Yeah. So I spent a couple of years selling uh, semiconductor equipment use semiconductor equipment, which was a really interesting role. Um, brutal sales gig, absolutely brutal. Seems like um, it. Yeah, it was absolutely, it was excruciatingly challenging. However, if you're gonna sink or swim, it was a great environment to learn. Um, average sales price was close to a million, if not over. So you were doing pretty sizable deals at like 24 years old, um, yeah. which was insane. So you learn how to negotiate or at least how to, you know, one of the things that I often find with younger reps is that when you change your pricing, they get really uncomfortable on call and they actually kind of like share their discomfort with the prospect. And so when you start off your entire sales career negotiating 
one, $2 million reactors, like a $5 price point per seat doesn't even phase you. Like, yeah. oh, you want to change it? Five bucks? Doesn't matter. You want to change it? 30 bucks? Doesn't matter. You know what right. I mean? So yeah. it gave me a really good foundation, but ultimately after a couple of years, I was like, okay, I kind of get what everyone else is doing when they said air quotes tech. Yeah. And now I want to go find a SaaS, a SaaS gig. So, yeah. um, that's actually, that was probably the, t this particular pivot was tougher than the pivot from wine to hardware sales. Yeah. Um, I believe it. It's, it's incredible how hard it is to get a job in SaaS if you've never sold a subscription-based service. Um, you know, I was coming in with a resume interview after interview saying like, look at my track record. I had hit like their, their equivalent of President's Club multiple times. I, you know, I could negotiate these large deals and nobody would touch me. Like I was mm. basically, I was unhirable. And the other thing that I could, that I had that I was just shocked by was that I, in, in the, in that job, you know, you had to self-source your pipeline, which many jobs have, you know, you have to go find your prospects, but what this job had that other jobs don't is that not only did you have to find people to sell to, but it was arbitrage. So you actually had to find the equipment to sell first. Mm. So you had to cold call both sides of the deal. Wow. And then, so it was basically, you usually started with the equipment. You'd cold call into companies, try to find like used pieces of equipment they didn't need. Then you would take them and you would try to market them and then find somebody who needed it. And you would basically blind the buyer and the seller and put, marry them together. Huh. Um, but no one would touch me. So um, I, I, at that point, I had heard of a recruitment firm in the Bay um, by the name of Beth Recruiting. They're still up there. They're great. They're actually, they've yep. expanded a bit. Um, and so I started talking to them and they told me there was this tech startup that was unfunded, really smart CEO who's basically was looking for somebody to take a chance on them. Yeah. Because I mean, unfunded tech startup in the Bay Area doesn't really scream job security. Right. Um, but my standards were pretty low at that point. So I was like, sign me up. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that's how I actually found Reich was a, uh, was a meeting with Beth's recruiting. And I remember I was living in San Francisco at the time and I drove all the way down to San Jose, California and um, met with Andrew Filev, who's that was then and still is the CEO of Reich, although they've since been acquired by Citrix. Um, and that began my career there. So, so I'm curious, based on your background, uh, now that you've been in SaaS for probably a little under a decade now, uh, mm -hmm. what, you know, seven, eight years, like, do you, when you're hiring, do you look for people that have the SaaS background or are you maybe more prone to take a chance on someone that is coming from another industry? Uh, I definitely think I'm a little more flexible than most hiring managers on the background. Yeah. Um, if I'm looking at like a, a, a senior, like account executive or account manager role where I need someone to come in hot and ready to close, I'm pro I'm going to require SaaS experience purely for ramp time. But when it comes to like, kind of like entry level and like level one and two roles, I'm way more flexible. Yeah. Um, you know, you had one of our call, one of my colleagues, um, John Barcelos on the call and he's got a super crazy unorthodox background. Yeah. You know, he didn't, he didn't come from SAS. That guy has done everything under the moon that wasn't SAS. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely not, I'm definitely not married to that. He's a mixologist and all these things. It's, there's something mixologist. about selling alcohol and getting transitioning into SAS. 
I will say there is something about selling alcohol that makes you a hustler and it makes yeah. you learn, like it, it makes you a hustler and you kind of, uh, I don't know there's something about selling alcohol where like you see your commission every time you make a sale. Like I remember, I knew exactly how much I would make every, every case of wine I sold exactly yeah. how much. Um, yeah. So I don't know something I, about it. I started at doing Cutco in college, uh, for a summer and it was the same mm. thing, you know, you know, your exact yeah. commission percentage. And then as you sell more, your percentage goes higher. So I know walking out of that house, assuming I made a sale, exactly how much you're making. And there's, there is something about that. How did you get into Cutco in college? Were they recruiting on campus? Or did you like no. look it up? Are you like, I need to make cash. I'm going to Google how to make cash quick. Pat, this is crazy. So I, um, I, and I'm like an introvert, like uh, you could, uh, if you ever talked to my mom, not that you would, but if you ever did, like you'd say, like, <laughs> I never talked to anyone. Check. I was an introvert. Like I was just like always at home and I played tennis in college. I got surgery okay. one summer, so I couldn't like teach. So I found this flyer on the grocery, like parking lot, this bright flyer that was like, make money, you know, work the hours mm. you want. And I'm like, I'm in. So I'm, I've got a, my arm in a sling all summer because of the surgery. And I'm wearing like, you know, a suit or like a button down with a tie, just like driving uh -huh. around with my bag of knives. Oh, and, you probably um, got so many sympathy sales though. As I long think as you so. kind of like led with the cast or the sling. It was a good, it was a good rapport builder for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, that was one of the funnest summers I ever had. Like you're chopping up veggies with all these strangers and um, it was a great time. So it wasn't a recruiting. It was just like, I just found the flyer and went for it and, uh, and just like ended up loving it. I think, I think Cutco's wild. There's so many people who started at Cutco. And I also think it's like the only job where you're welcome into strangers' homes with a box of knives. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's kind of when you actually think about it, like, huh, that's probably what my mom told me would not to do as a child. Um, yeah. But yeah, I know tons of people who started with Cutco. I know people who did Cutco for years after college. Yeah. And you, know, you can make good money. And I think the reason why it works is because it's all referral. You're not it's never a, a straight cold call, you know, at the end of every mm -hmm. meeting, you're getting a list of like 10, 20 people. And so I'm saying, Hey, I was just at Pat's house. She thought that, you know, you might want to, mm -hmm. you might be interested in whatever, you know, so yeah. it's, it, it, it's a little bit of a warmer call, but the in-person sale, the quicker sale, the transactional as I imagine wine probably was, you learn a lot that way. You do. Um, I think it's way more brutal. Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's one thing, you know, when you get rejected on the phone um, and then, you know, he rejected on zoom way it happens all the time, but getting rejected in person, like it's a, it's a gut punch and it's awkward. It's real yeah. awkward, especially if you're in someone's home, totally. you know, it's like, all right, totally. let me just, uh, pack up my stuff and walk out of your living room. <laughs> and the worst is when you, you know, like driving up to the house, like it's a really nice house and this like fancy, you know, zip mm -hmm. code. And you're like, oh, this person's like they're, they're going to throw down a grand on knives. And then like those people were never the ones that bought, but that's, no. just, that's just a side. Did you learn like telltale signs? Like, was it like, Oh, if they had like a really nice stove or if you saw like a particular appliance, you knew that they would throw down. You know, it, I always felt like it was more of, it wasn't like the people that had the really nice kitchens or the really nice, this is, or that. I always felt like it was the people I guess this is kind of like obvious or corny, but just like the people that like really, like you built a really good connection with. And so like the way that I would try to do it, like I would bring 
fruits and veggies. And then I'd be like, well, what are you making for dinner tonight? Like, let's just start chopping some stuff up. And so I felt like though they <laughs> give like you this binder. Yeah, they give you this binder for your pitch. And so like, if I was to spend too much time in the binder, it never worked out. So at, at some point I learned like, all right, once we like get into their cabinet and start breaking open mm-hmm. some tomatoes and sweet potatoes and whatnot, I, I always felt like the more engaged they were, the, the more we were going to sell. So that was kind of my go-to. That's really funny. Um, I, I'm curious. I want to get into some of the Reich stuff and then and, mm-hmm. and eventually into Postal. I want to take one quick detour backwards from the farm, yeah. uh, the farm childhood. Like, oh, okay. were you were you put to work? Like, were you like on on the daily after school? Like, you know, feeding the <laughs> chickens and stuff. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious if that translated to your professional career. That's a, that's a great question. So um, we, my parents' house is not on a, is not on the farm. There's, it's on what many Americans would consider a very large piece of property. It's like 14 acres. Um, but that would be what we would call recreational farming. So every kid had like their animal. So for me, I was sheep. My sister was goats and my brothers did pigs and then turkeys. And then my mom's always been a chicken lady. Like she has a sign that says she's one chicken away from being a crazy lady. Um, and she's well past that one chicken at this point. Yeah. Um, so we always had that kind of stuff around the house. Uh, and the rule, the rule was always, and we had like dogs and cats and things like that and, and rabbits actually. We had a lot of animals. Wow. Um, wow. Okay. But the rule of thumb was basically like, you didn't get breakfast and you didn't get dinner until your animal was taken care of. So whatever that was for that animal that day, if it was as simple as feeding, then it was that. If it was like, oh, they had to have their pen cleaned, then it was that plus feeding. But there was definitely like, our chores were a little bit different than just the standard, like you need to make your bed before you leave the house kind of thing. Um, But yeah, I would say like we worked, my parents instilled quite a bit of like hard work into us. Um, There were four of us. There is, um, I'm, it's my sister and I are really close in age. And then there's a break and then there's, I have two brothers. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of like had our, based off of age, kind of like chores. Like my sister and I had the more sophisticated chores. My brothers had like, it's kind of like, I think they had pigs. Pigs are pretty easy. Pigs are yeah. smart. For those of you who don't know farm animals, pigs are the smartest of the bunch I just named by a long shot. Um, sheep and turkeys are the stupidest by by miles miles so of course I had the sheep I had multiple situations where like I'd go out to feed and a sheep would like stick their head through the fence and then get stuck and so you spend the next 30 minutes like with the sheep that doesn't want to be touched like trying to shove their head back into the fence and the whole time you're just like I really just want to eat dinner like you just need to get back in the pen and they're pretty Um, big oh yeah they can get like between 100 150 pounds yeah, I mean, depending if, on like if you're how like old a middle schooler trying to do that, that's oh that's yeah, yeah. Task. So like, I guess my um, I I you know it's funny. I married I married a guy from Detroit, so I married a city boy. Yeah. Um, and it's very funny because now we live in San Luis Obispo near my parents, and so they still have quite a bit of a few animals. And so sometimes you know like a goat will hurt itself, and you got to run out in the pen and try to figure it out. And like getting dirty, seeing blood, giving an animal a shot, any of those things doesn't even phase me like just throw me in there without shoes and I'll be fine but it's kind of because that's how I was raised like right. none of that stuff is weird gross or whatever but yeah uh, it's he always is like you're not gonna go like put boots on or like and I'm like no it's bleeding <laughs> I gotta go <laughs> that's hilarious um, but yeah I mean I do think it was part of it um my dad always worked insane hours um that kind of comes with the territory 
Yeah. It was always like he, he worked, there were many, and I, I give my mom so much credit because anyone who has parents in farming, it's like, if either both parents are like totally connected to the farming operation and they're very, they have to be very absent for a large period of time, or one of them really does do a majority of the child rearing. Yeah. Um, and my mom was very alone for many years while my dad was getting like the farming operation up and running because it'd be, it is easily a six day work week, easily yeah. like 12 to 16 hour days. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. But, so. but I imagine that that does play a pretty big role. Like once you get into, you know, the working environment, it's like, you didn't, you weren't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you weren't like coddled, you know, like you, you weren't just like all right, just like mow the lawn and, you know, we'll give you your allowance. Like you were getting, I mean, you were taking sheep out of fences and, you know, but doing yeah, the whole I thing mean, every day, you know? My dad once told me, um, and I think I've, I think I've said this and I kid you not in like every interview I've ever, um, like for a job that I've ever had because it stuck with me. And he told me when I was interviewing for my very first job, when I was, uh, I scooped ice cream and made coffee. Actually, great job. I scooped ice cream and made coffee at a little shop on the beach. It was great. Oh, great gig. I know. Um, but I remember he told me before the interview, he was like, you have to learn what you can control and you can, cannot, you cannot control if you're the smartest person in the room, but you can control if you're the hardest working. And that's like always stuck with me because it's so true. Um, and I've definitely learned someone who's built teams. I'm never the smartest in the room, um, but I can lead by example and be the hardest working. Mm, I love that. I love that. So I want to fast forward back to uh, the days at Reich. Um, you, know, you spent a number of years there, like help them go from what they were unfunded when you came um, and then, you know, just rise through the ranks and, um, you know, just have crazy growth. And at some point you and your husband moved out to Dublin, right? Yep. To, I would imagine to open up the EMEA office out there and kind of like yep. the, the operations out there. So I'd love to hear uh, what went into that decision to move from, you know, you seems like you've been in California most or all mm-hmm. of your life until then. So to make that move and then what it was like to, uh, you know, start things from scratch in, in a whole new country. Yeah. So um, I was super lucky and very fortunate that Wright gave me that opportunity. Um, when I first met Andrew in that very first interview, um, I told him, I was like, Wright is going to be big at some point. And I was like, and when we go international, I'm going to do it. Mm. And I have no idea to this day if during that interview, he was like rolling his eyes behind the scenes. Like, oh yeah. That was okay. during the interview? Oh yeah, I told him in the interview, <laughs> you, when you're like, Reg's gonna be big. And when you go international, I'm doing it. Like I, I knew I wanted to live a live abroad. Um, the previous company when I was selling, uh, the semiconductor company, um, we had had two stints, once in Barcelona, once in Zurich. And I'd gotten like a taste and I was like, I got, I want to do this like full time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I told him in the interview and it was about a year and a half later. Uh, I will never forget. We were at SKO. It was, our, I think it was our first S yeah, it would have been our first SKO in Mexico. Um, and I was a team lead at the time and we were in a session where our team wasn't too big. I mean, it was like 30, 40 people there. And he and my boss like walked into the session and they kind of look at me and kind of quietly go like, like finger pointing, like come here outside, which SKOs in Mexico, I've got like eight guys on my team and I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody's totally in trouble. Like you don't yeah. get pulled out of a session for a good thing. I was like, oh yeah. God, who did something stupid last night? Yeah. So um, they pulled me out and they were just like, all right, we wanted to talk to you alone. 
we just got confirmation that like, we're going to get the thumbs up. It was our kickoff was in December. We're going to get the thumbs up basically early summer to go abroad. And we want to know if you want to do it. And I was like, oh my God. Um, and being that I had joined so early, you know, Andrew knew my husband because when there were four of us in the office, we used to do team events with spouses because just four people's really small. So we made it eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was like, so I want you to go home, talk to Ryan, decide if you want to do it. And I was like, no, no, he'll do it. And he's like, well, you don't have to make a decision right now. Like go home, talk to Ryan. I was like, let's call him together. And they were like, no, <laughs> they're like, no, really. Um, so I remember I called him and I was just like, I was like, I'm talking to Andrew right now. They want to go to Europe. They think it's going to be Amsterdam or Dublin. Like, what do you say? And I just remember he started laughing. He was like, well, I love Guinness. And I was like, there we go. Um, <laughs> so it was a pretty easy decision for us. Uh, you know, and we, given that we were, we were very young in our lives, we'd actually just gotten married. Let me think about that. Yeah, we had just gotten married maybe three months beforehand. Oh yeah. Um, so he, I think at that point you're making so many big decisions in your life. It's like, ah, screw it. What's one why more? Not? Yeah, one like, more. Yeah. <laughs> you know why not? So um, that's how personally we made the decision. I would not advise that anybody necessarily take that kind of free uh, free approach. Or not everybody, I guess, has the liberty to do that. But that's how personally we made it. Um, professionally, you know, the reason why I really wanted to live abroad is there was so much about building a team abroad that interests me. I, I consider myself kind of like a, a puzzle person. Like I like being presented with a, with a problem and trying to figure out all the potential solutions and kind of hammering them out. I don't mind failing a few times. Yeah. Um, and I viewed this as like a potential, like a really interesting puzzle. So Dublin or Amsterdam ended up being Dublin. Um, and obviously, you know, in hindsight, I'm super grateful that it was because I spent almost five years there and I loved every minute of it. Um, and when we moved over, we, uh, it was, we had hired before I landed. And this is something, if anybody's thinking about launching a different country, I was given a ton of advice on this topic and I took a path less traveled and I swear by this decision. And I think it was the reason we were so successful is most people when launching in a new country have to decide, do they hire a recruitment firm to build their landing team? Or do you actually invest in a full-time person to join the team that's actually your like recruiter? And everyone was telling me to use a firm. Um, but my challenge with the firm was that I knew how important those first like five to 10 hires were. Yeah. Like your landing team sets the foundation for who this entire organization becomes. And it was so important to me that the Dublin or EMEA team was a reflection of Reich, but also uniquely Dublin. Yeah. And I, there were certain personality traits I was unwilling to be forgiving on. Like they had to have certain qualities. Um, we had a saying that was we were hiring missionaries, um, not mercenaries. Mm. So our first 10 really had to believe in the product. They had to believe in the mission. They need to be flexible. Like, cause basically when you launch a new country or a new office, it's basically like launching a new company. Yeah. And so we needed people that were super comfortable in that mindset. And so I ended up hiring a full-time recruiter um, and it was a great decision. Uh, she, she came with like the new equivalent of the Rolodex and she was like, yeah. here's all the best AEs in Dublin. She's like, here's how long they've been at all these companies. Here's their, their, you know, here's the last time I spoke to them. This is their salary range. This is the kind of stuff that they like to do. And it was, I was, they, I landed in, I think June or July of that year. 
And by the end of August, we had eight people in the office. Wow. Like we had all of our kind of like eight kind of like first hires and it was real fast. Yeah. So um, great decision. What, what other qualities other than the missionary versus mercenary and, and being flexible, were, were there any other qualities that you were like, there were non-negotiables for you for that role? I, I wanted people who were insatiably curious mm. um, and insatiably curious, self-aware. I didn't want anyone coming in being like, I was very nervous about hiring. We hired one person coming from Salesforce who had done very well at Salesforce. He ended up being a great hire. He stayed with us for a very long time, but I was really nervous about hiring him because, you know, he was coming in with four or five years of like very well-trained Salesforce experience. And I was like, we're not Salesforce. Like you're coming in to a, to a very small team, very small company. We don't have 15% of the processes that you're used to. So like, what's your, com how comfortable are you with chaos? Can you make sense of it? Um, but you know, he ended up being uh, honestly a great hire. Um, but yeah, they're comfort, comfort and chaos. So I liked, and, and also I should say, we would talk a lot about goal setting. So I'd ask them like, you know, in their personal professional lives, tell me about a long-term goal that you had and break down the steps that you use to get there. I wanted to see that they could break large goals into incremental steps because otherwise, quite frankly, if you were looking at the serviced or uh, rented office that we were in, with a bunch of people whose tenure is less than 30 days, and then you looked at our revenue target for the year, you probably would have had a meltdown. Like yeah. <laughs> this team has to get to what number? And so I was, it was very big on like, I want making sure that everybody that came into the team knew that big long-term goals had to be broken down into like small incremental steps. Yeah. And so we were, we were really big on that when people started in one-on-ones, like I wanna know what on a daily basis you need to do to get to that target. Yeah. How do you do that personally? Like, you know, you, you came into Reich so early and maybe you were just, you know, it was your first gig, you know, in SAS, so like you were just kind of mm -hmm. like winging it. Um, but then you have such a massive goal of launching the operations over in EMEA. And then you have, you know, your current role at, at Postal, right, where you're coming in. I don't know exactly how early they were when you joined, but another just like kind of massive mountain to climb. So how do you like break those into smaller chunks to not be overwhelmed and to just like get to the next step to the next step to the yeah. next step. Well, I joined, I joined Postal the very beginning. I was the first customer facing hire at Postal. Okay. So you, I, I think there's a lot of similarities between starting at Postal and actually launching EMEA for Reich. Because mm -hmm. in both places I was, there was a day where I'm alone in an office looking around a bunch of empty desks, like, right, we got to do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, the way that in both in both those cases that I take it is you you start with you start with the revenue number. At the end of the day, that's what matters is the revenue number. Um, and you break that down into the different departments that you influence that I would influence, for example. And in both cases, it's things like customer success, um, sales, which we all know there's multiple components within sales. Um, there's support, and then I also kind of took like a what kind of marketing support do I need? I've always been, um, I have a love affair with marketing. I'm not the traditional salesperson who will fight with marketing. You can yeah. ask any marketer I've worked with. I have a love affair. I can't do what they do, so I love them. Yeah. Um, I appreciate them. Um, but I would break down, I'd start by department, basically. What do I need at the end when I get to that, when I get to that revenue goal? What is that going to look like? What do I think? And then from there, I usually, honestly, I cut it in half because I like to think in half yearly. 
So I'm like, all right, so six months, if I'm on track, what does that look like? And that to me starts to get me into like a smaller group of time that I can work yeah. with. The hardest part in both cases is hiring, mm-hmm. like being super honest with yourself about how long it's going to take to actually get a person in the office and then how long it is to ramp. So what I usually find is that if I take like my first year, the first three months is all personnel. It's like hire, ramp, first three months. So then really when I look at that first six months, I've only got three months of like, okay, how do we actually make money? And I have to do all of the hardcore sales stuff the last six months. Mm-hmm. So that's really where you start refining things. Um, but it's tough because it's it often requires me to make assumptions. Um, and I, I hate making assumptions, but it's part of a growing business. You try to you know put your finger up in the air and guess which way the wind's blowing. Yeah. Um, but I have to make assumptions on do we what our average deal size is going to be, and if it's this size, like what does the you know what what do we think the upward growth plan is? Do we think we actually have enough sell motion that early? And if so, what can we expect from a revenue stream? Do I need to dedicate personnel to that? Um, but you try to guess like two or three scenarios for the year. Um, but I will say the first thing, if you're launching a new team, the first thing is hiring and be super honest with yourself. Because what I've seen is a lot of people get caught in that first three months. They don't realize how long it's going to take. And they predicted they're going to close revenue then. And it screws the entire model. Yeah. Like the entire thing. And you just got to know that you're going to have to hit much higher revenue numbers later down the road. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't sure if, if I was going to go here, but we're kind of vibing and you brought it up earlier. So I'm going to go with like, I, I want to talk about money for a second. Um, okay. And it's something that, you know, the most, most of the listeners of this podcast, right. Are, are fairly young sellers, probably in the first five to 10 years of their career. Um, and like, you get to that point in sales, right. Like where you start to like get those commission checks, right. At some mm-hmm. point it's like, all right, I'm not, you know, making like, you know, scraps as, you know, an entry level, I'm starting to close some deals. I'm starting to get this. Like, I'm always curious, like, how do people that are super successful, like, what do they do once they start making more money? I feel like no one really talks about that. Like, do, are, are people, you know, like, are, are they investing it? Are, are they saving it? Are they like trying to upgrade their, their life situation? Because I, I remember like, coming out when I first moved to San Francisco is like six months after graduating school and like, you know, still on like my ramen grind and still mm-hmm. like, you know, sharing an apartment with like three other guys. And like, you know, just like it, it, I, I felt like there, I didn't really have a role model in terms of like, well, what do I do once I start like doing well at sales? Um, so I'm just curious, like if anyone ever talked to you about that, if that was something that, um, yeah, but mentors at Reich or anything like that, or, or something that you have a strong stance on, just because you brought up earlier. Yeah, that you are it's, interested in money. That, I've never been asked this question, um, but I will certainly tell you how it works for us. Um, and when I was at uh, the hardware company, so Capital Asset Exchange, when you made your first big commission check, and I'll be perfectly honest, those commission checks were stupid large. Like you're 23 <laughs> years old coming home with 40 grand for the month, and you're like, I don't like, where do I put it? To put on my mattress, like I, I don't even. I don't, does, does Bank of America take this? How do I deposit? Um, but I'm serious. When you're like, I mean, that's a lot of money for that's anybody. But when you're tw- when you're 23, 24 years old, it's like, well, I don't even know how to react to this. And a ton of people that were working there with my with with us, um, 
they'd go and they'd buy a new car. That was like the thing at the time. Yeah. Um, I think for a lot of people, they kind of look to their peers and they're like, hey, well, what are you doing? And so I just remember people getting, I was like, it was like the same three series BMW over and over and over. <laughs> um, and I had, I had a, I had a Volvo, which I had had since I was like 17. Um, yeah. which is probably good for me because I'm a horrible driver for anyone listening. Don't get in the car with me. It's very five safe. Accidents, very safe car. They're, yeah. There I've been in five accidents. They're all my fault. I totaled a car once in my own driveway. <sighs> don't drive with me. But so I had a Volvo Jeez. and I was like, I don't think I should, change. I don't like, it's old, but like, I need a tank. Like, I know I'm a bad driver. Yeah. Um, and I actually met my husband at this job, by the way, I should mention that. So he was in oh, a capital asset exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, the story is relevant because he was the only other person who didn't buy a car. And that's actually how I noticed him. I was like, there's this guy rocking up in like this really old Jetta. Yeah. every day you know it'd be like my volvo his jetta and then a bunch of bmws maybe a porsche or two and so and that's actually how i paid attention to him um and i think it's part of me growing up we never had like we didn't spend lavishly you kind of can't when you're uh you know in a farm environment yeah. um but one of the things you know i would say at first i didn't know what to do with it so i definitely was more of the like cash under my mattress mentality like just shove in the bank account let it sit there as I got a little bit older and I was like okay we should probably do something and honestly what what tips me off into being like you should do something was I got enough emails from the bank being like we want to talk to you about the cash in your account yeah. um, where I was like okay well if these people are reaching out I must have enough to do something with yeah so um I would say that it's my husband and I sat down and we had a conversation um and this is before we got married about like what, what is important to us. And truth be told, what's important to us is flexibility and eliminating stress from the areas we can control in our life. Um, we both live to work. Some people work to live, yeah. others live to work. We both yeah. live to work, we love work. Um, because of that, we let work stress come into our lives and I'm perfectly okay with that. I know how to turn it off when I need to, but I, I kind of live for it. Yeah. Um, but because of that, I don't want, personal stress. And we both came from environments where we had moments in our lives where money was a very stressful conversation growing up. And we both were like, we never want that to be a thing. So for us, we, there's a few ways that we invest our money. So he has, he, he, not me, he invests in the stock market. That's his thing. Um, we have rules on how that's done. Certain amount of research needs to be done. We do not follow trends, but like long-term investments. Um, big fan of retirement funds. For those of you who are listening, you have to start that. I don't care if you're like, I'm only 21. That's exactly when you should be starting a retirement right. fund. And if your company, if you work at a small company and they don't offer a 401k, look at like a Roth IRA. You can start that on your own. You don't need to, uh, to have your company support you with that. Um, and then we have a few pieces and then this is probably the farming the farming girl uh, girl of me but you know what's the one resource that they stopped uh, they stopped making and that's land yeah so we've invested in a few pieces of property because that's what i know yeah. um and so those are kind of the two areas but we you know it's very important for us to not have that stress and for us to be flexible we've lived all over the place we travel all the time and those are the things that make us happy um, we still drive a Volvo. 
I would like you to know. Um, so <laughs> probably Thank God. Because of, <laughs> probably because of my track record. Um, but that's how we prioritize. So I think everyone has to prioritize, like, you know, what's important to them. I think no matter who you are, you have to start a retirement fund now. Um, but beyond that, figure out what, what matters to you. Um, I will say cars, planes, boats, they depreciate in value. The minute you drive them out, you know, off the lot or fly them out or out of the dock. So be very careful before you spend money on that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being willing to go there because, um, again, I, I think a lot of people can relate. Like I can relate to that being like a stressful conversation growing mm -hmm. up. And then, then you find yourself with some of those larger checks and you're like, well, what do I, you know, what do I do with it? And there is something to be said about like, you know, to your point, if you know that you're going to be, you know, working really hard and like spending a lot of your mental energy on that, then it's like, well, maybe you don't need to spend your mental energy on something that you have to pay for that's going to make your life a little bit more efficient. You know, like some mm -hmm. people get the, you know, that live in the city, get like, you know, the delivery laundry thing or delivery groceries or as an example, right? It's like, I, I hate grocery shopping and I'm going to have, you know, uh, Instacart do that and it's going to cost like $10 of delivery, but you know, I'm going to spend that hour doing something else. And like that, that could be maybe an mm -hmm. example of like, as you're, as you're leveling up, maybe you're, you're uh, yeah. making your life quality a little better. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the big moments for us is when we decided, oh my gosh, should we, should we get someone to clean our house every like two weeks? Yeah. And it was because it was, it was a, it was a fight every Saturday. And we're like, <laughs> why are we fighting about this? Like, why don't we just pay someone? I forgot you can do that. But, but yeah, I would say like, you need to, you need to figure out what matters to you. Um, yeah. But yeah, figure out what matters to you and what makes you happy long-term. Um, very, very rarely, maybe you're a car person. In which case collectibles can, collectible cars can actually um, improve in value over time. But I really, I see too many young salespeople come in with brand new cars and I'm just like, oh, I hope you saved the first few commission checks before you did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It kills me every time. So. Yeah. Um, so the last topic uh, I want to get into, I, I, I noticed uh, in some of the LinkedIn research that it looked like you had started uh, the women at Reich group, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. maybe you were just a member, I think you started it um, mm -hmm. a number of years ago. So I'd love to just hear you talk about that experience and, and maybe you're a member uh, of other things here in the States or, uh, or maybe not, but just like the experience of, of kind of gathering, um, you know, the group of women in sales. I know that's something that a lot of folks are pushing for uh, to get more diversity in the workplace and, and to give everyone the same opportunity. So I'd love to just hear you talk about uh, that yeah. experience and, and any takeaways you had from it. Yeah. So yes, I did. I did start Women of Reich. Um, Women of Reich was very important to me because I, as we were building the team in Dublin, and, and again, I was so lucky to be able to influence that team because diversity has always been, you know, super important. Coming from my, the previous gig, I was one of like three women in the entire office, the entire office. Wow. So I, I was used to being kind of like one of the only female in the room, so to say. So when I came to Reich, one of the other things I said in my interview, I had a pretty bold interview with Reich, it's amazing he <laughs> hired me, um, is that I, I was very adamant that I had the ability to influence culture and that we would not have a bro culture. Mm -hmm. I was like, because it's, it's something that, you know, it can, it can absolutely happen. It, sales is still a male dominated career. Um, and it's something that can turn women off and make them feel like they're not welcome or they don't belong or, you know, that's not a place for them. So Andrew was like, you know, hands up in the air. Yeah, totally. You can, 
you can totally do that. So when we were building Dublin is when I started to realize, you know, the work that we were doing there with my partners in HR around, um, there are a few things that we did in the hiring process that were a little bit unique to Dublin, making sure that we had diversity. So, and I was like, I think that we should bring this to the wider organization. Cause you know, we were very much kind of in a, we were literally and figuratively on an Island. So a little bit in a silo. <laughs> and so I thought, well, we could make, you know, women of Reich and women of Reich was not just a sales organization. It was for every department. Um, and because the other department that really struggled with females was actually engineering. Engineering had a bigger problem than we did in sales. So we wanted to bring, uh, we wanted to bring a couple of things. We, we covered all sorts of topics with women of Reich. And we had great guest speakers, um, but you know, everything from like unconscious bias to, we did a whole session on like power stances and how to, you know, gain confidence before calls, how to ask for a raise, how to revamp your resume, um, how to have uncomfortable conversations. We did a lot of management stuff as well. Uh, one of the things that we found, you know, so I focused very much in the beginning on like, how do we hire more diversity? And I know there's, there's way more diversity than just gender, obviously, um, but we started with gender. Um, one of the things that we did is in the hiring process for every role, every role, no matter the level, a man and a woman had to make it to the final round. Hmm. So there were some roles in some languages, because in Dublin, we were hiring you know, dozens of languages where we had to delay hiring for months because we were trying to find uh, you know, a female candidate that can make it to the final round. And we weren't, it wasn't like we would just push a candidate to be like, oh wait, just get her to the final round so we can just, because I mean, to push someone to the final round meant taking up, you know, five people's time. And that wasn't something you're willing to sacrifice. So we were pretty, so it was, you know, it was, it was something that this method worked really well in keeping our HR team accountable as opposed to just taking the easy way out and just be like, okay, here's like the five, you know, closest resumes I've got. All of them are dudes. They're coming from Microsoft and Salesforce and Google. Here you go. Yeah. Um, but, um, what we realized in doing this, and this was kind of where the second phase of women of right came in was that we did a really good job across Reich of diversifying our sales force. Yeah. Reich, by the time I left had like a fairly good split women to men, but when you started to rank them and put genders into levels, we were starting to seriously miss once you got past first line managers. Mm. And so that's where we started to fall apart. And so when I left, we were kind of in the motions at Women of Reich of providing a lot more management, like support, offering women, you know, a little bit of a glimpse into like, what's it like to be a team lead? What is like, you know, how do you have, we, there's a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor. I don't know if you've ever read or heard of it, um, but we did a few sessions on that. She, we were fortunate enough to have her actually speak at a Reich uh, conference. So there's some really great tidbits there on like how to communicate negative feedback. Um, one of the pieces of, of the information that we got from people at Rake was, you know, sometimes I feel like if I give negative feedback, it's perceived differently than if my male colleague does. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of coaching sessions on, on how to deliver that. Unconscious bias training was also huge for us. Um, we had everybody go through it because everybody has unconscious bias, women included. In fact, we found sometimes women hiring managers were some of the worst culprits mm. because they've just, you know, they've spent their past 10 years hiring and working next to the boys. And yeah. you don't realize that some of those, some of those things are hiding in your head are actually deterring you from hiring a perfectly great candidate. 
but because their demeanor is a little bit different than what you're used to, you're going to, you know, push them aside. Yeah. So, yeah. I was a big fan of women in Reich. It's still, I think it's, it's, I think it's still going over at Reich today. Although they've been acquired by Citrix. There might be like a women at Citrix program, but um, it was great. By the time I left, I want to say there was over a hundred, hundred and something nice. people that participated. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, we've had a wide ranging conversation. We talked about a lot of different things. Uh, my last question for you mentioned that, that uh, Radical Candor book. Are there any other, uh, I don't know if you're a book person, podcast, YouTube video, something else, like anything that's, that's been you know, pretty impactful for you or that you uh, have, have you know, uh, found yourself rereading or re-listening to or mm-hmm. kind of like binging on? I'm just curious. Yeah, I think um, Simon Sinek, you can love him or you can hate him, but his yeah. his uh, Start With Why, super, super important for anybody who wants to touch management ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that was one of the more foundational early reads. The Sales Acceleration Formula, another great book for entry-level mm-hmm. managers. Um, Predictable Revenue, Aaron Ross, the OG. I think that's yeah. a great one. Um, and then really love Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Um, and then the two challenger books, I actually, I never talks about the challenger sale. I love the challenger customer. Yeah. I think it's like the, I don't know why people kind of always glaze by it, but the challenger customer to me is like the future of sales. Mm. Like that's your, I mean, especially if you are selling in an emerging market or like a fresh technology, one of those markets that Gartner and Forrester haven't defined yet. I think that challenger customer is the read for you. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a great list. Um, for anyone that wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so if it's LinkedIn or otherwise? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I'm uh, I'm pretty good about my my messages. Um, but yeah, hit me a note. Awesome. Pat, this was awesome. I had a great time. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks for checking out that episode. Um, happy April. Happy Q2 to everyone out there that's getting after it. Uh, Again, this podcast was brought to you by gong.io and postal.io. So great way to support me is to support our sponsors. Again, if you leave a review on Apple, I will send you a free Starbucks gift card uh, courtesy of Postal. So uh, shout out to the sponsors. Shout out to the guests today. Enjoy your day. Let's get after it. See you next time. Peace.